0: Welcome to this edition of the Conversations Podcast, the platform for the most brilliant minds. In this conversation, I'm joined by Roman Ksnorrik. Roman is a public philosopher who writes about the power of ideas to change society. His books, including Empathy, The Wonder Box, and Carpe Diem Regained, have been published in more than 20 languages. His new book, The Good Ancestor, how to think long-term in a short-term world has been described by U2's DH as the book of our children's children will thank us for reading. Roman's writings have been widely influential amongst political and ecological campaigners, education reformers, social entrepreneurs, and designers. Think about it for a second. You and I are living in the one and only planet we currently know for sure that sustains life in the whole universe. Let that sink in. How do you relate with your immediate surroundings? How does your neighborhood look like? How would you like it to look like for the moment when your kids and their kids inherit it? Are we currently living with a lifestyle that embraces the idea that we are living in the only planet that we know of that has life within it? Does this idea make you think about how much do you apply the golden rule in every interaction you have with other people, your surroundings, and the earth itself? My conversation with Roman, and reading his newest book, The Good Ancestor, has made me become aware of all of this. It has always been in my mind, this notion that we haven't found life elsewhere, but I have never thought about how this impacts the life of my children, which I don't plan on having any time soon, and their children. This is what Roman calls deep time humility, which means that we can take a step back and think critically about how little time we have to experience life within this blue marble in such a wide universal ocean and how much impact we can have in it. Unfortunately, right now, we're affecting it on the negative more than on the positive. This means that the world that my children inherit will almost certainly be left off worse than the one I inherited. Of course, no one has ever in his right mind the goal of leaving the planet worse for our future generations. But that's exactly what we're doing. But, as Roman argues in his book, The Good Ancestor, we can do something about it. In this conversation, we discuss the many ways in which we can be good ancestors from redesigning our political systems so they can take into account the long-term. How can individuals such as you and me can live a lifestyle that makes us a good ancestor? We also discuss six types of long-term thinking and much more. This is by far one of the most important conversations I will share with you. During my trajectory in this show, Roman has made me think of my future kids, their future kids, and being good ancestors. Reading The Good Ancestor has made me want to apply the golden rule with future generations who have no saying in the world they will inherit, and how being a good ancestor and living a good life are not mutually exclusive, but rather excellent complements. I do hope this conversation makes you think about your relationship with the future generations. And it makes you go grab a copy of Roman's book, The Good Ancestor, right now. Available everywhere books are being sold. Without further ado, Roman Kirstenarik. Hi, everyone. So I'm here with Roman Kirstenarik. I'm very, very excited and humbled and grateful to have you here, Roman. Thank well, you so much. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you, Alex. Thank you, thank you, and I'm very excited because on my my age always has you know as a 22 year old long term relates with being a 50 year old right 60 year old. But with <laughs> That's you, what
1: I am. I'm 49. So uh...
0: <laughs> yeah, so planning a lifetime at 22 seems to just be 30 years away. But with you, I'm very excited because you involved in your book, the Good Ancestor how to think long-term in a short-term world. You involved our future generations and the kids, my kids that are not here yet and their kids. So thank you so much for doing this and thank you for opening the forum for the future generations that don't have a say right now, but still will inherit a future in their world. So talk to me, Roman, how did your book emerge? What happened that sparked your interest in thinking long-term in short-term world? How, how did this e- emerge?
1: Well, I think like everybody, you know, I'm as obsessed with my phone as probably you are. And we are short-term creatures to some extent, Well, certainly our culture is. We're clicking the Buy Now button. We're checking the latest text. And we know our politicians are doing this too. They can't see past the next election or the latest tweet. Businesses can't see past the next quarterly report. And the spike, markets spike and crash in speculative bubbles. And, of course, our nations are short-term, too. We, they, our, our governments sit around international conference tables bickering away while the planet burns and species disappear. So I think we all know we live in an age of the tyranny of the now. Hmm. We need to solve this problem of short-termism because it is killing us, literally. It is stopping us deal with the climate challenge, climate change challenge. It's stopping us dealing with the threats of artificial intelligence. It's stopping us dealing with deep inequalities passed on from generation to generation. So part of my desire in this book was to deal with a frustration (laughs) that I felt. I was going crazy, picking up newspapers that said, there's too much short-term thinking. We need more long-term thinking. And I sort of think, well, what the hell is long-term thinking? How long is long-term thinking? Is long-term thinking always good for you? I mean, Adolf Hitler wanted a 1,000-year Reich. Well, that's long-term thinking, a thousand years, but is that necessarily a good thing? So, you know, what I've always done in my books on themes like empathy or on seizing the day, a book called Carpe Diem Regained, I tend to take a concept and pull it apart and try to put it back together. And that's what I've done with this book, The Good Ancestor, to try and really think about what long-term thinking is. So that's sort of one desire, really, a recognition that there's a kind of conceptual emergency. Mm. The concept we know is important, long-term thinking. And, you know, most cultures and languages have some kind of word for this or a term for this, but very few have a, a deep concept of what it
0: is. Going into that, it's, it's quite profound to think that the tyranny of the now makes me think that there is this tug of war between what the problems we need to face right now and the problems that will go into the future, you mentioned artificial intelligence, you mentioned climate change. And those are pressing issues today, but we know that their dividends will come in the future, right? The, the, the payoffs will be in the future and there, be, there, there, there won't be accepted like dividends. <laughs> there will actually be taking off our, our taxes and of our income and so forth. So how do we manage, how do we cope with this tug of war between our present selves, the problems we need to face right now, and the problems that will pay off in the future?
1: So that's a good question. I mean, I don't necessarily think of it as a war, like in a traditional war. I think of it as like a tug of war between two sides, between the short-term part of our brains and the long-term part of our brains. You know, do we party today or save for our pensions for tomorrow? Do we... <laughs> Update to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity
0: mm. the
1: thing about human beings is we're very good at thinking long term despite the short-term drivers like being addicted to our phones you know we have done incredible long-term things uh, if you look through the last 5,000 years that's how we built the pyramids by thinking mm. long term or the Great Wall of China that's how we voyaged into space that's how great social struggles um, taken place, like the civil rights struggle in the United States, which, of course, is still going on. These are struggles which take decades, half a century or more often. So we have this capacity for long-term thinking, but there is certainly a struggle going on between the present and the future. I mean, the way I think about it is that humankind has colonized the future.
0: Mm.
1: So we see the future as a distant colonial outpost where we can freely dump ecological degradation, or dump technological risk, treating it as if there's nobody there. And of course, there are people there. There's future generations, right? I mean, think about it. There are 7.7 billion people alive today. Wow. Now, over the last 50,000 years, an estimated 100 billion people have been born and died. But both of these are vastly outnumbered by the nearly 7 trillion people who will be born over the next fifty thousand years, assuming current birth rates level off this century? Oof. I mean, even in the next two centuries, tens of billions of people will be born, <laughs> and amongst those tens of billions are all our grandchildren and their grandchildren and the friends and communities on whom they'll depend. So, there's a real question here: is well, what is our relationship with all those future generations? Because we know mm. that. Our actions today have more consequences for the future than maybe at any moment in history. Probably since the first atomic test on July the 16th, 1945, the Trinity test in the New Mexico desert, you know when we, that was the moment when we were able to destroy the future, you know, the, the first atomic bomb. Since then, well, we've just gone on with ecological degradation, fossil fuels, ocean acidification as we mentioned, the threats of artificial intelligence, genetically engineered pandemics, as well as naturally occurred pandemics, you know, we are dumping a lot on the future. And so there is a big question there, as you say, well, in a way, there's a, there's a struggle to be had, which is, how do we liberate the future from domination by the present? Yeah. What role should you and I and everybody listening to this be playing in taking care of the future, because something that's happened since the end of the Second World War, which is that our moral circle has extended across space. So instead of just thinking in terms of our city or our nation, we think on much more on a global level. That's how humanitarian aid and development aid uh, have emerged since the Second World War, because we care for people on the other side of the world much more than we did in the past. But what we haven't done it really is extend our moral vision to the future extending the circle not just across space but through time yeah and i'm someone who you know is a uh, uh, has been subject to this as much as anybody else i mean back in the 1990s you know i spent a lot of time in guatemala actually was where i did my phd and i was uh, working on indi- interviewing indigenous people and members of the economic elite and I wasn't really thinking a hundred years ahead I was just thinking of the present moment the fact that Guatemala when I was there was at the end of a civil war mm-hmm. 200,000 indigenous Mayan people had been killed and how can you try and create peace and justice in that kind of society but at that time I was never really thinking very long term in the way I thought about politics for example. And in fact, after I did my PhD, I went and became a a teacher, a lecturer in political science and apparently an expert in democracy. And it never once occurred to me, this is true, in 10 years, it never once occurred to me that we disenfranchise future generations in the same way that women and slaves have been disenfranchised throughout history. In other words, future generations are given no political rights or representation. They have no influence in the marketplace. They're kind of written out of history yeah. uh, and written out of, out of the present. So going back to your question, although I, I wouldn't quite call it a war against between the present and the future, there is certainly a, a struggle for intergenerational justice. And a question we must ask ourselves is, which is, what is our responsibility to the future? And how will those future generations, those 7 trillion people, look back on us and the choices we made or did not make at this moment when we know so much about our potential impact.
0: Wow, that's a lot to take in and (laughs) too much. (laughs) It's 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 quite profound because it it makes you it makes me think of my relationship with with the world itself, my practical habits, the, the the way I've been trying to, to just go through life. And as you mentioned, not not sometimes just forgetting that some other human, many humans will come here and they will inherit a future where I stepped on, right? So I stepped on this floor. I stepped on this beach, this forest, and I threw a cigarette. I don't smoke. I'm just hypothetically <laughs> speaking, you know, but... The, what I'm saying is, it's quite profound that when you imagine the future, when I imagine the future, sometimes, or at least during this 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 past year, it seems grim. It seems it seems that it can go very badly. It seems like we're on a tipping point of of making the right choices, of imagining a better future, yet with this tension that we're living in it it can be difficult so how can we imagine multiple futures and how can we create leverage on those who turn out to be positive for my kids and their kids and so forth
1: that's an interesting question i mean i like what you were saying about you know that that sense of wonder one can almost have in thinking about that there will be all these future generations and i think we can feel it when thinking about the past mm. you know you can go to an ancient site like and going back to guatemala when i've walked around tikal the ancient mayan site in the paten in, in in guatemala you know and you sometimes you can kind of feel that there were people here 500 years ago or a 1000 years ago walking, sleeping, falling in love, <laughs> screaming at their children like I do sometimes at my children, um, living and dying. And, of course, we know that's gone in the, on in the past and that will go on in the future. And it's difficult to imagine what those futures will be like because, of course, there are many futures. Um, we don't know what they're going to be like. And some people say, well, how can you even think long-term when there is so much uncertainty and that the further you go out in time into the future, the the less you know, the more possibilities there are, and you can't possibly predict anything. A famous futurist once said that knowledge of the future is a contradiction in terms.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, I don't believe that, actually. I think we know a lot about the future. I think we know, certainly, talk to climate scientists, they'll tell you a lot about the future. They know what's going to happen to sea levels, and they know that the impacts of carbon emissions are going to be pushing up temperatures. They don't know exactly how much or exactly what the impacts are going to be in detail, but we know we are moving into uh, a hotter world. Yeah. Um, we know that that will affect food and water security. Um, we know that that will affect people's livelihoods, particularly in uh, low-income countries where there's a kind of climate apartheid in operation that people who are wealthy are going to be able to deal with the problems better than people who are not. You know and I think that's the reality of our moving from the the Holocene to the Anthropocene from the the period of stable temperatures which human civilizations have thrived in for the last ten thousand years and moving into the Anthropocene, the period newly named where we have become the weather makers, that our actions yeah are our, our, our impacts on uh, the earth through our fossil fuel economies have radically changed the future. But yes, we do know something about the future, which is that whoever inhabits the past and whatever their problems in life are and whatever country they are in, um, they will need certain things for basic survival. They will need air to breathe. They will need water to drink. They will need food to eat. And these basics are kind of certainties I mean, yes, we may become cyborgs in a few centuries, perhaps, but... um, Transhuman. uh, Yeah, I assume we may transform and have artificial hearts, brain implants and so on, but probably there will still be people a bit like us around over the next few hundred years who are falling in love and screaming at their children and and wondering about what the hell to do with their lives. And as long as those people exist, we know we're connected to them, right? And... Um, So, despite all the multiple futures that might occur, um, there is this basic thing, which is about creating and passing on a planet which is fit for human life, that is fit for all life. I mean, there's a great um, biomimicry designer and thinker called Janine Benyaz, who's one of the people behind the idea of biomimicry. It's a sort of form of architecture and design. And she believes that when we're designing or thinking about life in the world, we should be learning from nature's 3.8 billion years of research and development, learning from the 3.8 billion years of evolution. And she asks this question: She says, How is it that other species have managed to survive and thrive for 10,000 generations or more? How have they managed, whether it's a beaver or a bird or a bear? to survive for tens of thousands, millions of years, some of of them. Um, And she says, well, what nature has learned to do, how other creatures have evolved is that they have learned to take care of the place that will take care of their offspring. In other words, they've learned to live within the ecosystems in which they're embedded. They've learned not to foul or destroy the nest. And of course, that's what humans have been doing with devastating impacts at an ever-increasing pace and scale over the last century. We foul the nest with our toxic pollutants, with our technological risk, with all the plastics we throw into the oceans and the carbon we pump into the air. So we are not creating a world that will look after our offspring, that will care for our offspring. And that means we are fundamentally failing to think long-term about the future. So I believe, standing back in the last four or five years, I've been writing and thinking about long-term thinking. In a way, the eventual conclusion I've come to is that the, the secret to long-term thinking, is not just to think about lengthening time, but to think about regenerating place, right? In other words, to restore and repair and care for the living world that will take care of our offspring, all those generations going into the future. So that means wow. that's falling in love with mountains and rivers and ice sheets and savannas. And at least for me, that's a new kind of thinking. I, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I wasn't greatly driven by an, any kind of ecological vision. I was much more interested in human rights that's why i went to guatemala to work with indigenous people and try and study guatemala's 36 years civil war and and how to stop that kind of violence and deal with that kind of poverty but gradually i recognize that the big picture is about taking care of the planet and in a way i've learned most about about that from people like Janine Benya's the biomimicry expert, and from fields such as ecological economics, which is all about how do we create an economy which stays within
0: the boundaries of the living world. Wow, <laughs> I, th- that's amazing. It all goes into one notion that you discuss in The Good Ancestor, which is cyclical time and lineal time, right? So when you say an ecological economy so to say, to put in that sense, it's cyclical. It's not just about buying it and throwing it away. It's not just about born, being born, just dying, right? It's, it's it's a continuous cycle. And you touched upon a great thing, also mentioning survival, right? Our next generations will need air. They will need oxygen. They will need water. They will need a place to, to be safe from fire from water from rain right from storms but they also as you said they will need a place to flourish as human individuals they will need a place where they can fall in love where they can laugh and that's that's one of the biggest takeaways from your book that we're trying not only to to make a future where they can survive they need to thrive they need to experience their humanity That's the way we've built this this reality right now. It's through our own experiences. And some may say that the future that we're inhabiting was, the present that we're inhabiting right now wasn't perhaps in the minds of of our ancestors. It wasn't in the best mind, right? So if, if we're thinking about my grandfather or his grandfather, he wasn't thinking of my kids. But we can do that right now. We, we can actually put ourselves in that place and it goes into into the the latter part of your of your intervention right now was that we need a, a a spiritual relationship with nature it seems that my generation at least has lost a connection with meaning in life we've been parting away from religion for example big institutions that harvest long-term thinking One of the the six ways which I like to discuss with you in your book, The Good Ancestor, for harvesting long-term thinking is cathedral thinking, right? So building huge institutions, building huge cathedrals, like in Barcelona. And that gives me hope that we can actually tap into that notion of of cyclical time, of long time. Where do you think long-term lies? Does it lie in our brain? Does it lie in our institutions, in our culture? Where where does long-term lie? That's a really
1: great question because I think there's a lot of assumptions that human beings are by nature short-term creatures, that we are driven by short-term rewards and instant gratifications and the buy now button, which we mentioned earlier. Hmm. One of the fascinating things I've discovered when doing this research on long-term thinking is that actually our brains... Uh, They have long-term wiring in them, along with the short-term wiring. Um, So, for example, the way I think about it is that we have a a kind of a marshmallow brain and an acorn brain. And the the marshmallow brain is the bit which focuses on immediate rewards. And it's named after the famous marshmallow test from the 1960s, where marshmallow was put in front of kids. And if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow. And the majority of kids took the marshmallow. But we also, that is not the whole story of who we are. We also have this part of our brain, which I think of as the acorn brain. So like a seed that you can plant. And, and that's the part of our brain, which is all about long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. And it lives at the front of our heads in the, in the frontal lobe, a part called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And it's really interesting. It's only a new part of the brain. The marshmallow brain is about 80 million years old. The um, acorn brain is new. It's only about 2 million years old. Um, but it's more developed in human beings than most other species. So other animals do plan a bit for the future. So a chimpanzee will take a stick from a tree and take off the leaves and put it into a hole uh, to get termites out. But they'll never make a dozen of these tools and put them aside for next week. But that is just what humans do. Yeah. That's our acorn brain in action. That's how you can plan for your children's uh, education or write a song list for your own funeral. That is how we've managed these long-term feats. Like, you know, there's something called the Svalbard Global Seed Vault in the Arctic Circle, which is maintaining the world's plant biodiversity. They've collected over a million seeds from 6,000 species being kept in an indestructible rock bunker in the Arctic Circle. It's designed to last 1,000 years. Wow. That's the acorn brain in action. So I think very deep in us is this tug of war between the marshmallow and the acorn and then the question is okay how do we create a society that nurtures or amplifies the acorn part rather than the marshmallow part because you know you raise that question Does long-term thinking lie in our brains or institutions well it's kind of both because our institutions and technologies are designed mostly for the short term marshmallow brain so for example let's go back to the buy now button You know, If you go on to an online shopping emporium, I won't name any particular companies, um, you'll see the Buy Now button. Now, just imagine a a different world where when you press Buy Now, it had a drop-down menu with a number of choices like Buy in a Week or Buy in a Year or Borrow from a Friend. And that when you click Buy in a Year, then you'll get an email in a year's time saying, do you still really want to buy this yoga mat? Do you still want to buy this phone? You know, and I think most of the time we probably think, oh, we don't actually need that anymore. Right. So I'd love to um, hire some hackers to go into the online shopping sites and to um, change the buy now button. Because these little small changes, I mean, that's a behavioral shift, one might say, would, would change us. But also we've got to think about our political institutions. How do you redesign them for the long term? So let me just give you an example because this is actually going on around the world. I mean, uh, I live in Britain and in Wales there is a Future Generations Commissioner. It's wow. a political position where the job of the commissioner is to look at the impact of legislation in healthcare or uh, transport or environment, looking about thirty years ahead. It's not very far in the future. Um, she doesn't have a lot of power, but it's pretty good compared to most what most politicians are doing. Or in Japan. There's this really inspiring movement called Future Design. And it's itself is inspired by the Native American idea of seventh generation decision making. So making decisions based on the impact seventh generation ahead, which is what happens amongst uh, today in Iroquois and, and Lakota peoples in North America, indigenous peoples. But in Japan, they do it slightly differently. What they do is they invite local citizens to... Discuss and develop plans for the towns and cities where they live. Wow. We split them into two groups. And the first group, half of them are told that they are residents from the present day, from, from the here and now. And the other half are given these like ceremonial robes to wear, like kimonos, and told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out that the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more radical and transformative plans for their towns and cities, whether it's investment in health care or action in climate change. And this future design movement in Japan has spread from small towns to big cities like Kyoto. So you can look at a model like that and think, that sounds pretty good. Why don't we do that everywhere? Why isn't this kind of citizen assembly future, a citizen assembly model, um, experimented with from Buenos Aires to you know, Tokyo, to you know, Finland, to Helsinki, wherever. Um, people could be experimenting with it everywhere and I'd like them to do that because then what we would start to see is that you know, the, our short-term political institutions are not inevitable. You know, the politics that we have, representative democracy in most countries around the world, is new. It's only emerged in the last 200 years, mm-hmm. right? That is, that is in a historical sense, a new for, new kind of political system. So let's reinvent it. It wasn't like this in the year 1300 or in 500 BC in ancient Athens. So uh, let's try and create a what I think of as a long now civilization. Get over our addiction to the short now, and let's have a longer sense of now, which is a a concept I've stolen from the great musician Brian Eno, um, who is producer for U2 and David Bowie and other great figures, but he was also a serious brain and great long-term <laughs> thinker. And he said, We're in a short now culture. Let's think for a longer now. Let's take responsibility for future generations. Let the now be not seconds and minutes and hours, but decades and centuries
0: and millennia. Wow. Wow, wow. It's it's you know, speaking with you, it's it's amazing. It's just, oof. thank you, thank you so much for, for for saying that. And going into into politics, it's amazing, right? That for me, I, I I've I was born in a in a nation state, right? And for me, it's a given. It's like a predetermined boundary of of the physical world I live in. But it's not. It it can be changed, and it can be modified, and it can be upgraded in consequence. And I keep thinking. So I, I'm studying political science, and it seems that the notion of changing regimes it's good because it doesn't allow tyrannies, it doesn't allow, you know, corruption, so to say. The, the whole mechanisms of checks and balances. But now it has turned into into you know four years of creating an administration, creating an agenda, and the next candidate says, "I'm gonna tear away all." of the other candidates, of the recent president agenda and create my new one. There is not, not this this continuation of an agenda. And it seems that we need to, to, to gather around on the notion of the long now in our political institutions. It seems that politics shouldn't be a, a, a circus. It should be truly, as you say, having 30 years, an assembly of 30 years thinking, it's quite a landmark in terms of our politics now. So gather around that notion. And speaking of politics, comes into my mind democracy, right? So do you think that our democratic systems truly reflect or are truly an ally for long-term thinking?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because I think our political systems are kind of divided. On the one hand, you've got electoral politics which is very short-term, you know politicians who are just looking to the next election or their own ministerial career for example. And then you do have some long-term institutions like um, public services or um, legal systems and so on. Constitutions, you know, are often quite long-term in their vision. But in general the political decision-making is incredibly short term. It's not designed for taking the long view, but there's some really interesting developments taking place. So for example, one of the things that's happened in many democracies over the last 10 or 15 years has been devolution, you know, extending power or taking it away from central government and giving it particularly to the regional and the city level.
0: Mm.
1: And cities are really good at long-term thinking compared to nation states. I would say in general. I mean, just think that when Donald Trump pulled out of the pulled the US out of the Paris Climate Agreement, yeah. two hundred and seventy-nine US city mayors said no, we are going to stay with this agreement. And this these mayors from the two hundred and seventy-nine cities represented about one in five Americans, ranging from big cities like Miami to Boston, and they were saying, no, we're going to take a longer term view of this. We're not just going to throw away uh, this Paris agreement because it doesn't meet our short term desires. And I think you can also see this in the responses to COVID-19. you got, you know, again, some cities being very progressive, like, you know, Paris, the mayor, um, turning all the roads into, um, you know, bicycle lanes and parks. Amsterdam, again, the city has adopted the... Model of donor economics created by the ecological economist Kate Rayworth for its post-COVID recovery, which is a kind of a post-growth model, getting off the old idea of addiction to economic growth. Um, And so these are real kind of long-term visions. And so I believe that we need to expand democracy of the city, you know, give more power to cities, more participation. Um, And then, but the other area apart from devolution of power to cities, I think is really important for democracy, is legal changes. Um, I never really used to have that much faith in the law. I was always interested, interested in thinking about how you know well laws tend to be just manipulated they they 're something that privileged people use to preserve their power. but law also does have an independent power and in the u s for example, there is a movement to try and give rights to future generations, which I think is one of the most important shifts in the nature of human rights since the French Revolution so There's an organization called Our Children's Trust, a public interest law firm in the U.S., which has taken the U.S. government to court, filed a major lawsuit against them on behalf of 21 young people campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. So what they're trying to do is use the legal system to embed the idea of intergenerational justice. are probably going to lose Okay, it's been going on for five years already, this case, but these legal struggles are long-term and they inspire them in other countries. So the Our Children's Trust case has inspired legal cases in Colombia, Uganda, um, the Netherlands. And I think what we're going to see over the coming years, decades, is more and more of these campaigns or using the legal system to try and establish rights for future people, people who will not be born for a decade or 50 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, legal. there are legal movements to give rights to nature, to the living world. So in New Zealand, um, campaigners have managed to get rights for a river, the Whanganui River, which is um, a river that's sacred to local Maori people. Uh, in India, the Ganges River and the Yamuna Rivers now have legal rights like a person. Wow. And this might sound kind of mad, but just think, in the United States in the late 19th century, corporations were given legal personhood, yeah. legal rights, like a human being. Uh, and so why not give it to a river or a mountain or to the Amazon rainforest? Uh, so again, I think this is another realm where democracy needs to reinvent itself changing what we think of rights, what rights are and who should receive them, and, and injecting legal systems with a, a deep kind of long-termism.
0: Wow, and that goes into the notion of, of reshifting our relationship with, with Earth, with our habitat, as you mentioned earlier. And it gives power to a narrative which you've talked before, that the narrative is called Gaia, right? Trying to have this relationship with with Earth as a sacred place, having rights for nature itself. It's it's amazing, and going beyond that, having a spiritual relationship with it, having having a notion that you no, know, it might not have a saying, but it does have our our uh, decisions have an effect on it, right? So. If you could, trying to be empathetic, right? If I would be the river and someone throws garbage at me, I would be mad. <laughs> so why why not think that way with, with Earth? And that brings me to, I I had a guest, Andrew Maynard, Professor Andrew Maynard, and he, he talks about future and he talks about sci-fi. And he also mentions our notions of, should we do it? Or, and can we do it, right? So and science has been driven by the can we do it? So I think that when you mentioned the one button earlier, it's this notion of should we do it? Should we truly buy that yoga mat? Is it really necessary? How should we throw garbage into the river? I want to get into, into, we've talked about institutions and I would love to dive deep into individuals, right? So how can I join the long-term thinking mindset? How can my day-by-day decisions truly reflect that I, I'm walking my talk, right? I, I'm all in for long-term.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's a complex question. You know, how do I, as an individual living here and now, start feeling, thinking, acting for the interests of people beyond my own lifetime? Because that's really what long-term thinking is about. about. Like for me, long-term thinking has got to be at least 100 years beyond the ego boundary of your own mortality. Hmm. Um, That's what cathedral thinking is about, embarking on projects which may take longer than your lifetime or or will, will exist beyond your lifetime, like the medieval cathedral builders who started building their churches knowing they'd never be finished while they're still alive. So what can we do as individuals? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was with my children on a beach uh, on the south coast of England, where we go every year, and we were looking for fossils. Wow. And finding fossils, holding them in our hands. These were fossils which were 195 million years old, of little squid-like creatures, just tiny bits of rock. Now, no one had ever looked at them. No human being had ever seen them. They'd come up, washed off the cliff during a storm. I think some people can look at one of those fossils and have a real sense of wonder and deep time, a sense that we are just a moment in the great cosmic story going back 13 billion years to the beginning of the universe and at least five or six billion years forward to the death of our sun. And I think when you have that kind of sense that who are we in relation to time, that we're just tiny, that gives you a kind of what I call deep time humility. It makes you sort of think, well, who are we, yeah, to, to wreck this world without ecological negligence and technological um, dangers that we put into it. And it makes us act differently. But, of course, not everybody responds like that when they see a fossil in their hand. Some people think, oh, this is just a rock. You know. Um, for other people, it's like you might want to visit an ancient tree. Maybe there's a tree near where, where you live, which is a thousand years old, and you can feel its age. But for other people, they really feel it when they have children and they can imagine. I imagine my daughter and my son, I've got twins. I imagine, like, say, my son, who's now 11, sometimes I imagine him when he's 90 years old. I imagine him at his birthday party, surrounded by friends and family. He's got an old and wrinkled face. Uh, his eyes are fading You know, I I look out the window and see what kind of world is it outside that he's living in. And then I imagine someone coming over to him and putting a tiny baby into his arms. And it's his first great grandchild. And he looks into that baby's eyes and thinks to himself, well, what will this baby need to survive and thrive for the years and decades ahead? Now, that baby could live right into the middle or the end of the 22nd century. But if you think about it, that baby is only a couple of steps away from my own life. So, you know, when I try to connect with the future, sometimes I do it like that. It can feel, though the future can feel very far away and very ephemeral, unknown, a kind of darkness, I can give it a kind of human face and that I find really motivating. And I think to myself, that little baby, my son's great grandchild to survive and thrive well will not be able to do so alone they're not just like a baby floating in the space they will only survive with people and friends around them with a web of relationships and with the web of the living world mm-hmm. you know, with the air and the food and the water that they need to sustain themselves um so i think those kinds of things Different ways of making a kind of an imaginative leap, I think, can motivate us as individuals. Of course, some people, you know, they just are motivated in different ways. You know, literally, I can sometimes show people uh, an image of the seven trillion people who will be born in the future, like a gigantic circle, and then compare it to a tiny little circle, which is the 7.7 billion people alive today, like... I imagine the 7.7 billion people like a little green pea and the big orange circle of uh, future generations, like a gigantic orange or a grapefruit or something. The scale is huge. and Some people just, they get it. They see that scale that there's so many people in the future compared to now. It's obvious to do things for the future, Uh, but not everyone, uh, finds that appealing or it doesn't connect with them. So I think we need to recognize that human psychology is really, complex different things motivate different people the rational the emotional the historical the cultural and what i've tried to do in my book the good ancestors try to tap into all of those different ways motivations drives um, that can make us think and care and i'm not saying look don't think about the present day and don't think about your own future with your in your own lifetime these are questions of balance, really. I think what matters is that we have proper public discussions about our relationship with the future. And as an individual, we think about what matters in our own lives. I mean, there's a great Austrian existential psychotherapist called Viktor Frankl, who is famous for writing a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And you know what he said? He said, look, we, we kind of need to invent our own purpose in life, right? It doesn't, it's not natural in human beings. We have to invent it. And if you're going to have a purpose for life, you need to have a goal, what do you call it? a transcendent cause outside your own self, something that drives you to kind of get up in the morning. It might be the goal of finding a cure for cancer if you're a scientist or keeping your family business alive or just looking after your kids. Yeah something bigger than yourself. And I think as an individual, that thing bigger for ourselves can include future generations. You know, we can, I think it's, I find it motivating to act on behalf of current and future generations. And I think as a society, just as Viktor Frankl said, we need a goal as individuals to have purpose. I think as a society, we need a goal too, what the ancient Greeks called a telos, a kind of a a, a transcendent objective. And I think that objective must be to live within the boundaries of this one and only planet we know that sustains life. So I think inside all I've been talking about there is really a kind of existential program, a sense that we can be agents and find meaning by acting on behalf of both Future people and future planet, um, and I hope and I believe that the the number of people who are thinking that way is growing. That this is a growing movement for intergenerational justice. People motivated not just by extending their moral vision across space, but through
0: time as well. Oof, that's I, I keep I keep going into wow 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 because <laughs> really Roman, you, you're mind blowing and. And also, your, your desire to, to work towards a, a long term future truly is contagious. In The Good Ancestor, you truly do that. You've, we, we talked about cathedral thinking right now, transcendent legacy, which you also discuss deeply in your book, The Good Ancestor. And I saw, I, I try to play the devil's advocate in my mind when you grab that fossil, right? And I, I and they, I try to put the same narrative, just with another twist. So instead of saying, "Hey, I'm just a, a blimp in the in the time," I'm just a just a blink, right? The time is millions eons of of years. I need to enjoy it. I need to enjoy the present. <laughs> that's like someone could actually go into that notion, right? It's it's this paradox of
1: yeah, that's right. I think. That you could think about that and say, OK, if we are just a, a blink, an eye blink in the cosmic story, then what does anything matter? Why should I care? Exactly. Um, the universe will continue. The Earth will continue without us. But what I have found by researching this and talking to lots of people is that those people who grasp this sense of deep time, it doesn't make them apathetic or it doesn't make them just become hedonists caring about the present moment. Most people conclude that they therefore have a relationship with the past and future, that they are embedded in something longer, a great chain of life that they have a responsibility for. I think it's, I don't know exactly why that is, but I think there is this, I think a good sense of humility that comes out of gaining that bigger perspective. I think, you know, when you look back at your own life, I think as we're growing up, we often have these moments where we grasp our own insignificance. Um, You might be on top of a mountain uh, and you realize, oh God, my life doesn't really matter, you know, compared to the hugeness of everything. But I think for most people, it doesn't make them become ultra selfish. It actually makes them become more caring and empathic, you know, when they get that larger perspective. Um, but I think it's you're right, it's good to be a devil's advocate. I think there's too much um, lazy thinking, you know, when it comes to deep time and long term thinking. You know, for example, I'm often invited by businesses to come and talk to them about long term thinking. Hmm. And I say, Oh, we're really into long term thinking. And I said, Well, is all long term thinking good? I mean, a former head of Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, once said, We're greedy, but long term greedy, not short term greedy. Well, is that a kind of a kind of long thinking we should aspire to? I don't think so.
0: Um,
1: And I say to them, look, if your company is all about long term greedy, I don't want to work with you. Right. (laughs) Um, So you need to be a bit more discriminating about what long termism means. You need to start getting clear about what your ultimate goals are. Um, Is your goal just long term profits or is it actually something bigger than your own company or your own life? Um, or even in your own nation.
0: Yeah. And going into into that notion of, of a bigger goal, a bigger objective, working towards a bigger idea than ourselves, than our existence. I think of my legacy here on earth, right? And I think of the company's legacy. So in 200 years from now or 300 years from now, people are going to look at A big company that ships you every single package to your house instantaneously what are they going to think right are they what was their legacy and it seems that right now we can change things it seems that working towards something that is rather practical as changing the buy now button can truly make a difference
1: i've i I think really interesting thought actually what it just made as you were just talking there I was thinking about um, some of the, the great um, sort of oil magnates and pioneers from the late 19th to early 20th century Rockefeller or Carnegie yeah These people probably thought they were doing amazing things in their lives um, but actually we now look back at those people and we'll look back at them as criminals carbon criminals yeah of various kinds um, and what really is their legacy their legacy I'm sure they didn't Think of it at the time that their legacy would be so negative, but that's what we're thinking now. And I think we can ask ourselves, yeah, how do we want to be remembered? Because most people, when they reach midlife, normally, you know, in their thirties, forties, fifties, start thinking about how they're going to be remembered when they're gone. Hmm. You know, they want to, and human beings want to. We want to keep the fire of our own lives burning mm-hmm. in some way. But there are lots of different ways to do that, like a Russian oligarch wants to keep themselves alive after death by having a, a baseball stadium named after them or an art gallery named after them. But yeah. I think we can become a bit more transcendent than that and think about yeah, a more transcendent sense of legacy, as you mentioned earlier, to care about the universal strangers of the future. I think that's quite a worthy thing to do.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it seems like the the tables have turned, right? We've seen with all the social movements right now everyone removing sculptures for example or remembering people that they thought the world wouldn't change the notions that we have of the future wouldn't change of the of our moral ideas wouldn't change and they do so i don't it would be an interesting question to ask them right did you apply the golden rule to your decisions every time did you apply the golden rule to to your community, to other people, to other souls who I, I I don't think no one truly is born, as you say, as you mentioned with, with Viktor Frankl, no one is born with a, with a, with meaning in their lives. No one is born with a clear objective, right? We, we, we create ourselves as we go and thinking in that sense of my future kids and their future kids, and us being good ancestors, I can I can truly say that I don't think having this mindset of golden rule with future generations does impede having a satisfying life here, my life I, I I think I can enjoy my time here, and also I think it as you say, it increases because I have an objective. it's okay, so I'm not gonna trash away the the sea. I'm gonna look after it because sometime. My kid will bring his kid here, and they will see how beautiful it is. We should thank our great grandfather, right? And it's rather amazing to think that uh, that legacies don't consist on um, building baseball stadiums. We we've done that. We, it's past our mindset. We're now in the verge of technological breakthroughs that we can't imagine. Like talking simply here, you and me, about artificial intelligence. Just mentioning it, like in the air it's mind-blowing there it as you say we can create rights for nature we can create rights for future generations and we can think of creating building laws to protect artificial intelligent sentient beings who may have feelings that's it's mind-blowing it goes just i'm becoming passionate (laughs) so trying to to lower it down i'm I'm passionate about the future because I've inherited a good life and it creates a sense of responsibility with me. It creates this boundary of my tools, my skill sets, my abilities to to create a future. At least, maybe they're not harvested, but we as human beings discussing these issues, discussing long-term, can persuade ourselves to becoming better ancestors. And I'm passionate because... It's, it's quite amazing to think that we can shift our perspective when it comes to, to living and dying and create it into thriving, thriving for our future generations.
1: Yeah, actually, just, can I just tell you something that I once did? I did last summer in relation to this, because there's this real question thing. Ah, oh, is long-term thinking and caring about the future all about sacrificing things today? Do I have to sacrifice stuff in my life for future people? Well, not necessarily, no. Uh, In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, so last summer, I joined a group of colleagues from the Long Now Foundation, which is an organization which started in California, but there's a London branch. It's all about long-term thinking. And we went on a pilgrimage to something called the White Horse of Uffington, (laughs) which sounds a bit obscure. But what it is, is a Bronze Age artwork it's over 3,000 years old that was cut into the side of a hill uh, in England about 20 miles from where I live in Oxford, and it's about 100 feet long. It's like a, it's like a horse, the shape of a horse cut into the, into the grass, because under the grass is chalk, so it's white rock. Wow. So You can see this white horse from miles away, but for over 1,000 years, people have been going back to the white horse every few years to clean it up, to take the weeds out that keep growing and to, to bash more um, chalk with hammers into the, the sculpture so it remains seen, this artwork. It's amazing. So I went with some people and we, uh, as, as part of an organized um, sort of thing, we called chalking the horse. We went and got new chalk, white, white rock and bashed it into the horse and we're part of a thousand-year-old tradition. And wow. it was brilliant. We had such a great time. It was fun. Um, But we were also involved in a long-term maintenance ritual. It was part of creating a culture of long-termism because we'd inherited, our cultures inherited this amazing white horse like we've inherited the water systems and the sewers and the soils. You know, and then there's a question of, let's look after this and pass it on to those who will come. And it's one of these things, you know, rituals provide our lives with meaning, you know, and so a ritual of going to this horse once a year and bashing in the rock with a bunch of strangers, they're no longer strangers, actually. What a, It was a fantastic thing to do. Um, but it was a reminder for me that, you know, caring about the future is not just about sacrifice, but let's not be afraid of the sacrifices too. You know, I very, very rarely take an airplane flight because of my carbon emissions. I have to give myself a carbon budget each year. I don't fly in Europe and wow. this kind of stuff. And on some level, yes, it's a sacrifice, because my father right now is ill in Australia. It's very you know hard to go there, also because of COVID, but I don't go back to Australia very often. Um, if, on some levels, it's a sacrifice, but just stop for a moment, because the nature of freedom has always changed. You know, in the 18th century, it was normal for p- people of a certain class to own other people. They were called slaves right slavery continued in brazil until 1888 and it still exists in many countries in some forms of of debt bondage yeah but it's no longer normal to think that my freedom should allow me to own another person right now i will go and get my own drink you know hopefully Um, so we've had this limit placed on our freedom right or certain people have Um, but we then learn to live within this new limit, mm-hmm. right? a limit which doesn't include a kind of freedom, a definition of freedom that doesn't include slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Now we, And I think now we have to live within a definition of freedom which doesn't include huge emissions of carbon for individuals. But yet we can find things within the freedom that remains which give our lives purpose and meaning and enjoyment, like chalking the horse in the in the oxfordshire countryside with a bunch of people you know um i think that so i think we need to in a way be creative and curious about how we exercise our freedom yeah uh in a way which is compatible with caring for the living world and for those future people who will never meet and that i think is a great i love that challenge
0: it is it's amazing and it's funny, it's quite a, a, a perspective shifter, right? It, you, we often think of, uh, uh, th- there's this this idea that you discuss and um, discounting the future in economics, right? But let's enhance it, let's create it, let's make it enjoyable, let's make it a, an activity that we can all go together and create it. It's quite a sh- perspective shifter. And this is getting into philosophical terms, right? So. Our lives consist in choices and there's this notion of free will. And there is this, let's go into that, the same example we used before, liberty versus responsibility, the talk of war, right? We have freedom, yet we have responsibilities. We need things, we we have to do things. There's this notion that freedom relies on our abilities to choose wisely. And... You, you bring up a great point that we need to create justice for intergenerations, not, not, just, not just ourselves. And freedom is not just walking around and doing all that I, that I want to do. It's, it's freedom consists on actually being wise and, and trying to think of, of others and those who don't exist, which is also another mind blower.
1: Yeah, I mean, even very traditional ideas of liberty or freedom from the 19th century say, yes, you should be free, but not if you're encroaching on somebody else's freedom. Yeah. You know, and that, that's even, you know, people on the left and the right can all agree on that. So if you stop and think, okay, well, whose freedom am I encroaching on, or am I limiting by my actions? Well, every time you put carbon into the sky, yeah. you are limiting the choices of future people. Exactly. And I think if you read something like the economist Amartya Sen, uh, his book, Development as, F- as Freedom, and he's got this idea of capabilities, what's called the capabilities approach uh, to development. You know, it's all about we should act in a way that enhances other people's capacity to make choices yeah. in life. Exactly. And who are we to limit the choices of those future uh, generations? I mean, it's quite an, an arrogant and dominating thing
0: to do. Yeah, um, but it should be quite the opposite, right? We, we, we have to think into enhancing their choices to, to be born yeah. in
1: a... So, in fact, in a way, you know, we can think about all of this question about intergenerational justice and and the future in terms of notions of freedom. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, again, for some people that idea can really resonate. You know, other people like talking about justice, others about legacy, others about deep time, others about their kids. You know, I think we all need these different uh, ways to think about it, as I said earlier.
0: Um, Wow, the the time just went by. Sorry about that. I didn't even notice. Talking with you, it's... My time, my notion of time just... It wasn't cyclical, it wasn't linear, just it wasn't there. <laughs> I think that's
1: what this is all about. We need to reinvent our sense of time.
0: Yeah, so let's wrap up. I mean, there's plenty of questions I would like to get on, but as, as we've seen in this conversation, we, we expanded on, on, on all of them. So, Roman, tell me your, your closing remarks. What do you expect when people read your book? What do you expect... When they have this aha moment and how do you think, how do you envision this, the good ancestor, creating a true effect in, let's say, 200 years?
1: That's a great question.
0: I think that
1: one of the fundamental ways the world changes is by people having new conversations, by saying things they haven't said before. That's how you change culture. And out of culture comes new politics new economics and so on. So my hope is that this book will create new conversations about what it means to be a good ancestor to get people talking with friends family work colleagues strangers about questions like well what do you want your legacy to be to the future to the planet the future generations what have you learned in your life about deep time What do you think should be the ultimate goal of humanity? Do you think our civilization is going to collapse? And if you want to stop it, what do you think we should do? (laughs) All of these big questions, these are kind of questions I raise in in my book about different ways of being a good ancestor. But my hope, I guess, is that in a couple of hundred years' time, that talking like you and I are talking now is going to feel completely normal, that we will live in a culture where we feel that the people here today that the living and the dead and the unborn are all here in the room with us mm. all here having the conversation with us
0: wow I, I truly see my kids and their kids having in their bookshelf the good ancestor I truly <laughs> see that Roman thank you so so much I'm very glad and grateful and honoured and humbled for, for you talking with me and This was a deep talk. We immersed in deep issues, in a deep conversation, and I truly take away a lot of things talking with you and reading your book, The Good Ancestor. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a really fascinating and eye-opening conversation. It's really stimulated my brain.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of The Conversations Podcast. If you find this episode interesting, don't miss out on new conversations and subscribe to the podcast at any podcast feed you use, and leave me a review. Also, consider sharing it with someone you think can enjoy this episode. Our new awesome music is by Joe Lyle. More info can be found at joeliledrums.com Hosted and produced by Alex Levy.